Hi, Greg Weldon here with another edition of Money, Markets, and New Age Investing. Today, we're going to start off with U.S. credit. We're going to work through credit. We're going to work to inflation. We're going to work to China. We're going to work to OPEC. We're going to work to energy and oil, which ties back to inflation, and how this is affecting the stock market as we see a dramatic shift in allocations here uh, into the stock market where moving away from Infotech, like we said on our last podcast, like I've been saying in our freebies you know, on social media now for the better part of two to three weeks, pretty vociferously, all right, out of Infotech, out of consumer discretionary, and into energy. And we see that really manifesting now. We're going to get to that at the end. And we have some stuff that we want to show you as well in terms of you know some of the charts that are related to today's uh, podcast. You can find them. We'll be posting them on Instagram, which is uh, you know age of polarization investing with underscores between each word, and Twitter, which is at money underscore podcast. All right. We also doing shorts now on a lot of this stuff. It's called you know in in a macro market minute, which is less than sixty seconds, and I will discuss inflation. I will discuss OPEC. I will discuss energy. All right. You can find that on our YouTube channel, which is YouTube backslash user backslash Gregory Weldon. G-R-E-G-O-R-Y Weldon W-E-L-D-O-N. So look for some of that stuff because it's it's out there for free. And again, you know, part of the goal here besides going to business is certainly to help people, you know, that uh, can't, you know, at the retail level, you know, the mom and pa investors out there that, uh, you know, we're trying to even the playing field as much as we can. As we go forward here, credit is really the first, first and foremost thing on my mind because the consumer credit numbers came out for June. That's the Fed numbers, which are a month delayed, okay, than any other, you know, data point except for trade. Uh, and also, you get weekly numbers from the commercial banks, banks on consumer credit, also from the Fed. But the, the numbers are consistent. The monthly numbers are really good, the way the Fed breaks them down. The most recent month was $17.85 billion in credit, consumer credit in June. What was interesting here was a decline, a decline, rare, really rare decline in credit card borrowing, all right? suggesting maybe the consumer's tapped out, all right? And there's some other things, as you're going to see in a few minutes, that also suggest that very same thing, all right? Within that context, you had non-revolving credit, a.k.a. auto loans, student loans, up $18.5 billion, more than making up for the decline in, in credit card borrowing, all right? But what's interesting with this credit card borrowing, we say, you know, it's the consumer tapped out, and, you know, certainly we know that the excess savings from the pandemic are gone, Okay, you're back to savings levels that are even lower than they were before the pandemic. All right. We know that wage gains are, you know, basically vaporized the second you go to cash the check because inflation is still pretty high. All right. 3% and rising and probably bottomed. We'll talk about that in a minute, too. But the average interest payment on credit card debt is 21%, 20.86. Come on, man. That's insane. On the largest amount of credit ever borrowed. I mean, it's just it's just crazy. Borrowing at the highest cost to borrow ever. And that's up from what was already a high level of 14% back in 2018 before the pandemic. So you're going from 14 to 21. You're up by 50%, 700 basis points, which, by the way, is a lot more than the Fed raised the Fed funds rate. You can see right there how banks are passing along their own costs at an even greater extent. And this is part of what the Senior Loan Officers Survey shows us. And we're going to talk about that in a minute, too. Got a lot to cover today. But the bottom line is there is there's evidence in both this report, in the weekly report, and in the senior loan officer survey to suggest that consumer is going to be less willing and able to borrow going for going forward. So in that context, we note the 12 month growth in consumer credit hit a peak of 160 billion, 160 billion over a 12 month period. 
That I mean, that's more than ten billion a month. You know, every month as of November twenty second. All right, it's come down to one hundred twenty seven billion, but at one hundred twenty seven billion, it's still pre pandemic the highest ever. The highest before the two thousand eight two thousand nine crash was in November two thousand six at ninety one. April of two thousand one before the tech bubble crash eighty one. Now one sixty. Think about that. Okay, and then you know that I've been saying all along that I believe that this whole thing around credit is, you know, consumers in the lower half, maybe even the lower two thirds of the income scale, you know, with no savings, don't own stocks, don't own a house, whatever it might be, they're not in the places home ownership, particularly that gives them any kind of feel good factor for the financial situation, which is why the New York Fed survey shows that people feel less comfortable about their financial situation going forward than feel more comfortable about it. It's just that simple. More people are uncomfortable and feel to be in worse financial shape 12 months from now than feel to be in better financial shape. I mean, that's not a good situation for the economy going forward. And they've had to borrow record amounts at record cost on their credit cards to pay the bills. What happens when inflation comes back? Because it's about to. I'm going to tell you why in a minute. What happens? That's when the economy really hits the skids. That's when this recession that hasn't happened happens. All right. In this context, I did a study for my institutional clients just recently about credit versus uh, uh, inflation to see, is there merit in what I'm saying and what I think is the case? Is it statistically borne out to be true? Credit versus inflation, this is one of the really the only time, except for maybe 2007, when you saw a direct correlation with credit going up because inflation was going up, all right? So in the past, it really hasn't been a, a consideration, nor did I would I have thought it would have been. It is now. Uh, number two, then I took credit and compared it to GDP. There is a direct correlation there to where credit goes up, consumer credit. Consumers borrow more money when GDP is going down, straight up, one just you know, black and white. It really is. And when you have both taking place, it's a real rarity, which has really only happened one other time, 2007, we know what happened in 2008, 2009. The economy got whacked, all right? I mean, the housing market's already gotten filleted. Look at the mortgage market. I mean, it's just gotten wasted. I mean, you know, a new home loan purchase, loan originations are down, you know, 45% year over year at their low. You know, the refi was down 90% at its low. And now, you know, mortgage rates are kind of, you know, revamped to the upside a little bit. Home prices are through the roof, right? Because no one's building homes. You know, so and we need that to happen and it's not happening. So the next round of inflation is going to mean housing is even more nuts. All right. What does that mean for rent? All right. We see this kind of in the senior loan officer survey, too. Let's start talking about, OK, one thing to have credit where, you know, consumers are feeling a little tapped out. How about if the banks don't want to loan you money anymore? And what about if consumers are unable to or unwilling to borrow more? At the same time, the banks are unwilling or unable to loan them more. A credit crunch. The thing that we most want to avoid here, even more than a recession, is a credit crunch. Because you don't know that you know, once you prick that bubble, can you contain the air? Because this is a 50-year credit bubble that if it, you know, if it implodes, I mean, it's just you know, the proverbial stuff hits the fan. It really does. And that's something that the Fed has wanted to avoid all along until Jerome Powell. All right, go all the way back to 1978. Paul Volcker said the last thing we want is to constrict credit. Right now, well, guess what? Several Fed members have said we need to constrict credit. And they probably do. The problem is you're playing with fire. You know, you really are. All right, so the senior loan officer survey, all right, small firms, really tough to get credit now. 
Okay, the somewhat tightened standards on loans for small firms, 50% of banks. Considerably tightened, 13.3%. That's two-thirds of banks have tightened credit for small firms. When small firms really need it, and frankly, going forward, are going to need it again and more so. Now, why are these banks doing this? Surprising to see the number one reason is the deterioration in their current or expected capital position. In other words, the banks can't afford it, or they're afraid they can't afford it. All right? The somewhat con concerned for large banks was 37%. Almost four out of 10 large banks are concerned about their capital position going forward to its affecting their decisions on making loans. Holy mackerel, did we hear this? Is the Fed, is the Fed reading this survey? And I think this might be one of the reasons why I, I, you could say they've paused, okay? Because I think the SLUs, which is what they call a senior loan officer's survey, is really what kind of put a skid into the Fed's rhetoric. It really did. I noticed the difference right away, all right? The deterioration in capital position as a reason for not making loans is very significant for 18% of small banks, one out of five small banks in this country says their capital position is deteriorated to the point or is expected to deteriorate to the point where they can't make loans or certainly are less willing to make loans. Let's not be overdramatic. Less willing to make loans. Straight up, less willing to make loans. That's the terminology. All right. Let's talk about loans in construction and land development. We need more homes. It's that simple. We need more homes. 75% of small banks are tightening Standards for construction and land development loans. 75%, three out of four. All right. It's the third most highest, it's the third highest ever reading in the tightening for commercial real estate loans. I mean, holy mackerel. And more than that, you know, kind of hitting hitting back to our initial opening points is the simple fact that it's the third lowest ever reading for the percentage of banks. Who, sh who are willing to make consumer loans. Third lowest ever. The only other times it was worse was during the pandemic in 2008. Take that to, I mean, take that to the bank and smoke it, right? Is what they say, right? Now, I'm not all gloom and doom. There is one big positive in here, home equity loans. Because home prices have gone so much, up so much, because so many people are kind of frozen in their homes where they can't afford higher payments based on a higher mortgage, so they're staying where they, where they live, you know, there is a huge pool of savings out there in home loan, in the home assets, all right? And consumers are moving now to take some of that out. It's the largest home loan, home equity loan uh, origination since, I think, 2009 or something like that. It was, it was in a long time, 10 years at least. It goes back to 2008, 2009. And that is a huge amount of money right now, too, and it's only going to get bigger. So that's a positive, and that's a big positive. I'm not, you know, minimizing that. But that's for people that own really expensive homes, it's not for the average guy out there who's what we're talking about here, okay? These are people that are not using their credit cards to pay the bills, all right, in the first place. So, frankly, that's great for them. That's not something that is broadly applicable, all right? Again, you know, the haves and have-nots, ever-widening gap. Here's one reason why that gap just widened in a massive way to the tune of trillions, trillions of dollars, trillions. The numbers are staggering. I don't even want to go there because they're so large. Let's talk about China for a second, okay? Because you kind of see this point to where the U.S. could erode really quickly, where everyone says a soft landing and everyone says we've averted a recession. What if inflation comes back? What if inflation comes back? 
Well, one of the things that, you know, inflation has come down for one reason, because energy has come down, all right? It's a big base effect, all right? But also because you've had this Chinese shutdowns, this Chinese slow economy has reduced demand for a lot of these things, which allow commodity prices to come down. Stuff like copper, soybeans, all these commodities that were high flyers have come way down. Lumber, rubber, I mean, a lot of them, you know, this is, I mean, stuff I watch every day, all right? And all the currencies. And in that context, the dollar has kind of stopped falling. So, you know, those, those commodities priced in other currencies have, have stopped rising to the point where China actually has bought a lot of them, particularly in crude oil, copper, and soybeans, those three. Having said that, and in and, and this kind of shutdown thing, and now all of a sudden, we see numbers around the world, especially in Asia, where exports are slowing. Vietnam's exports have slowed six months in a row to the point where the central bank is cutting rates for a fourth time, likely this month. Think about that, right? This is not this, and this is not uh, like a one-off. This is not. This is happening in other places, all right? Thailand, we saw. Taiwan, we saw. Uh, some of these other countries. Watch Malaysia. Watch uh, Indonesia. These are the real countries to watch for, where exports are so important to their economies. Singapore. Right. Chinese exports are down or imports rather or uh, exports. Yes. Chinese exports down 25 billion four months over the last four months. It's a counter seasonal move. This is a time when exports are normally rising and down 14.5 percent year over year. What's interesting, our imports are falling even more because commodity prices have come down, which has allowed them to be buyers of some of these commodities. All right. But now, finally, you're starting to see that they're they're kind of slowing down their buying because they've accumulated so much of this stuff. And, and frankly, I think this whole, you know, COVID shutdown and slowing Chinese economy is done on purpose to weaken the West. And here it is again. Here it is again in terms of inflation. They have no inflation. What they have is a huge trade surplus. All right. It's going to be over $1 trillion this year alone. At, at least $310 billion of it is going to be with the U.S., if not more. I mean, this we're talking roughly a billion a day paying out to China in trade. And borrowing a billion an hour from the rest of the world just to run the government? I mean, the Twin Tower deficits are back. No disrespect intended. But the Twin Towers are back. All right? Now, in terms of inflation, well, everyone's like, you know, all of a sudden, you know, people are in an uproar because China might export deflation. Well, I mean, we're fighting inflation. Isn't a little deflation a good thing? Well, that's assuming, A, that they would be. Because they're not, because their currency is not that weak. I mean, it's kind of weak. It has been kind of weak. So, yes, that to some extent. But there's no inflation in China, not yet anyway. All right. CPI is in negative territory. But it's in negative territory because of food and energy. And food in negative territory because of the weighting of their index, which takes pork into an enormously huge component, you know, way to the extent of other things. All right. So, in that context, you have pork prices were down like 27% year over year. All right, because of you know pork down, and it was a year-over-year dynamic. Energy down, transportation collapsed down five percent year-over-year. Food, food went from plus two point three to minus one point seven in a single month. That's a five percent. No, excuse me, that's a four hundred basis point shift from positive to negative. Why do I say all this? Because it's not going to last. Because this is the real. This is the evidence of the base effect in energy. You know, right there, we see it in the U.S. I said. To my institutional clients, when we got a 3% inflation handle with the July number last month, okay, with the, excuse me, with the June number that we got in July, I said, this is the bottom. This is it. We're going to bounce from here. And we did. We're 3.2 now, all right? The core rate jumped, all right? To whatever extent now, you have an inflation situation in the U.S., all right, and in China, where all of a sudden now, you may see inflation re-rise. I mean, I, I believe this is coming. 
And I believe it because the numbers are there to support the idea. It's very simple. Let's look at it this way. Gasoline prices in the most recent inflation report, 3.2% year over year was the headline, up from three. Gasoline still down 19.9% year over year, down 20% versus last year. All right. But it's up two months in a row. Okay. Not only that, consider this. The gasoline last July was $3.36 versus this July is $2.78. Okay. So now you can see where that, you know, 278 down 20%. There's your, there's your CPI. Not only that, but let's consider this. You know, energy is by far the most volatile component. When you overlay energy, which I recently did, we overlay energy with shelter and food. I mean, shelter and food are nothing. Energy is all over the place. It really does drive the year-over-year changes, all right? We know that shelter is not coming down anytime soon. The housing situation, there's no supply. You know, landlords don't lift or or, or raise their more, their rents based on the ability of the renter to pay, or the social situation or the financial situation of the of the economy of the country, they do it based on the value of their property. And guess what? Values are going to go up. Guess what? Rents are going to keep going up. Guess what? It's going to become increasingly difficult to afford a decent place to live in a lot of places. All right? In terms of food, well, 16 of the 108 components are still above 8%. And within that list, I won't read it to you. I did with my institutional clients just the other day. I mean, it, everyone buys this stuff. It's, it's fundamental stuff. Condiments, for example, is up 15% year over year. You know, so you want some ketchup on your barbecued burger, it's going to cost you more, man. All right. Degree to which four of the majors of the six major food groups posted an increase last month, but the, the other two were not down. They were unchanged. All right. Normally, there's at least one, even at the peak of inflation, there was at least one component that was down. One of the six major groups was down almost every month. It varied. It changed. You have none of them down now. So you take this into a situation where, you know, you're going to have a, you know, you have the crops coming now and there's some talk about yield maybe being lower. They just lowered the yield and whether that's real or not, the rain has come since and blah, there's a whole lot going on in the ag sector. All right. Food prices really probably have bottomed and really, you know, I don't see a situation where they go negative to the degree that you have deflation there. Shelter way up, food flat to up, and energy? Well, last year, 336 was gasoline prices in July. This year, 278. Last year in August, prices had dropped 60 cents. Remember last August? Yeah, gasoline prices cratered. Gas went from 340 to 250. 90 cents almost. I'm giving it, give or take a few cents, give or take seven cents there. So it's actually down 83 cents, 83 cents year over year. And where are you now? You're at 291 versus last August, 250. You're higher by 40 cents. That's 20%. So all of a sudden you go from minus 20% in gasoline to plus 20% in gasoline. And guess what? Inflation goes back to four and change next month. It's coming. Why do you think the Fed wanted to wait? Why do you think the Fed wanted another inflation number? The Fed would like to see one more inflation number, and they're going to get it before they meet in September, I believe. I believe there's one more number coming before the Fed meets. I could be wrong. But this is why. The Fed knows this stuff. The Fed's not stupid. They knew the base effect is going to do a dramatic reversal, just like I said it would on the downside. Now it's going to work on the upside. Mark my words. You're going to have another round of inflation. And what does that mean? Now, even worse than that is tying in OPEC. 
Because what you have here is a situation in the energy sector where there's not enough supply. All right. Note that the XLE, which is the S&P energy sector, the individual shares, the ETF for the individual shares in energy, you know, ExxonMobil and Chevron, all that, has broken out at the very exact same time. We've had a major long term, very clear, very concise technical analysis, one on one thing of beauty breakdown in solar, wind and alternative and clean energy. The iClean, the fan, the tan, all the ETFs there are cracking wide open to the downside at the exact time that the petroleum stuff is going nuts to the upside. Crude oil breaking out, gasoline breaking out, the XLE breaking out, all the stocks pretty much in play. All right. And it's kind of like, well, what's going on there? What's going on there is because, again, U.S. energy independence, right, should be, uh, you know, of avoiding some of these things. Well, let's look at the current administration's record on this. OK, they've dumped 40 percent. I believe it's that much. Could be more. I'm trying to be conservative. I didn't look the numbers up before I did this today, but we talked about this last time. And I have the charts if you want to see them. Of the SPRs, Strategic Petroleum Reserve. Imagine if you didn't dump like 100 million barrels onto the market, where prices would be right now. They've done that already. They can't do it again. They can't do it again. That, that option's gone. That card has been played very quietly. They have depleted our strategic reserves to keep prices from going up, and they're still $80 a barrel, number one. Number two, because of all the shut-ins or limitations you've, you've had on you know drilling and moving you know product here in the country, you had the largest single week of imports of crude oil into this country in over 20 years last week. Largest single week of imports of crude oil in over 20 years last week. Where's this independent thing? We're not independent. We're beholden to who? We're beholden to Saudi Arabia. We're beholden to OPEC. We know that. And you've already bungled that relationship twice. Twice. The first time when you dissed the younger house of Saud, the younger faction that runs Saudi Aramco, all right, and then now more recently going hat in hand and looking like a complete fool, you know, to the kingdom, begging, all right? This, is an, this has just been an awful performance, and I'm not being political. I'm just being straight up, this is the fact, all right? I would, I would be the same with anyone from any party that handled energy policy like this, all right? Absolutely mishandled from day one, and now we're in awful shape. Why? Because you have record demand for, for, for energy around the world. You have record demand for petroleum. You have record demand for, for crude oil. 103 million barrels per day for the first time ever. The IEA and OPEC have both just put out monthly reports with all kinds of statistics that I just dug into for hours. It's great stuff, all right? The output right now, you know, global output, 101.5. So you're already a million and a half barrels per day shy. What's happened, all right? And I did a report on this recently where I, I put out the numbers exactly. And it's staggering. When you look at the expectations for demand growth in the fourth quarter and you play that against output, you're talking about as much as two to three million barrels a day shortfall per day, meaning every month you are drawing down 90 million barrels out of inventories, inventories which around the world are already down 115 million barrels in just the last three months. The SPR, forget that, down 40%, you're not touching it. U.S. inventories are below the five-year average. Gasoline inventories are below the five-year low. And where are you going to get this oil? All right? Well, guess what? You're about, let's say you're a two and a half to three million barrel shortfall in the fourth quarter. Inventories are going to draw and price is going to soar. Unless Saudi Arabia, 
who has 3 million, 3.119 million barrels per day of excess unused capacity that's been shut off on purpose. Think about it. If you don't think that the U.S. and G20, for the most part G20, is that war, a financial war with OPEC, Russia, and China, then you need to open your eyes. And this is a big part of it right here because this is what's going to happen. You're going to see energy prices go through the roof and you need to be involved in those products, in those markets to help protect yourself. Again, this is where you have to do things you didn't think you'd have to do. This is why we started this podcast, to help investors do the things they need to do that they've never had to do before to protect the purchasing power of their paper, money, and wealth and income. It's that simple. And here's a great case in point. Saudi, Saudi Arabia is holding off 3.119 million barrels of crude oil a day at a time when the, when the world needs that to be balanced. If not, inventories will draw and prices will soar. All right. I said in the last podcast, and I've been saying on social media everywhere for a better part of you know, four, five, six weeks, exit Infotech, at least lighten up. Exit consumer discretionary, at least lighten up. We've chosen gold and energy. Gold hasn't worked out, but it will. All right, and energy. Let me just tell you, in our ETF playbook, okay, which if you want to check it out, I'd be happy to put you on a, give you a free copy. But our ETF playbook, which helps investors with their allocations from a variety of ways, with all kinds of specific recommendations. All right, in the June 23rd playbook, we were 52% Infotech. We loved Infotech earlier in the year. All right, 22% consumer discretionary, 23% industrial, nothing in energy on June 23rd. A month later, July 26th, Infotech was down by over 20 percentage points to 34. Consumer discretionary was halved to 11. Industrials down by 5 to 18, and all that went to energy at 20%. As of last Thursday, which would have been the 10th, energy is second only to industrials at 30%, but energy is 26%. Infotech 11, consumer discretionary none. So this is what you need to be doing. And this has been timely. I mean, really have. We have timed this very well. What do you do with energy? Well, energy is the ENE. Uh, the, uh, let me check that. The XLE, I'm sorry. The XLE, all right, which is something we do in the playbook and something we look at every day in the Weldon Live. All right. I just did a report actually on Friday laying out all the individual energy shares. If you want to copy that report, sales at weldenonline.com. I'll give you a report, a free report. I wasn't going to do that, but I will, of our uh, big energy piece that I just did. We'll show you all these numbers too. The USO is the crude oil ETF. The UGA is the gasoline ETF. We've already recommended that, and we've been in that in our ETF playbook for quite some time. All right? So, again, some of the charts on credit and GDP and that one in particular and some of these dynamics and certainly around uh, some of the uh, statistics on the senior loan officer survey on inflation, look for them on Instagram age underscore of underscore polarization underscore investing and then on twitter at money underscore podcast also on youtube you have the what we're calling the in a macro any any macro market in a macro market minute which is videos that are 60 seconds or left we're trying to do one every day that is on topic for free i think through the end of september at the very least uh that's a youtube backslash user backslash gregory weldon check that out too uh, or if you want to check out the playbook and get their, uh, our piece on the uh, energy shares, uh, feel free to email me at sales at Weldon Online. Thanks for listening. Greg Weldon out. Until next time.